Patrick knew he was playing with treasonous fire. He closed his eyes as the words from Jeremiah once more filled his mind. You are to influence them, not let them influence you. They will fight against you like a besieging army against a high city wall, but they will not conquer you, for I am with you to protect you and deliver you, says the Lord. Amen, Patrick prayed silently. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And as you know, I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee, with Playful World Ministries. And I want to say a special thank you for listening. I count this a real privilege to bring this podcast to you every week, and I hope you enjoy the Epic Order of the Seven as much as I enjoy producing it. And while it is a true labor of love, the time and effort to create each podcast uh, from scratch, as it were, is a pretty big job. Wait a note, sir, lad. Did you see you make these podcasts from scratch? Uh, yeah. Why would you do that, then? I mean, I scratch all the time, but I don't want to make stuff out of the stuff I be scratching. It's just an expression, Max. What I meant... Oh, welcome, friend. Oh, good. Uh, Liz, you understand, then, huh? Oui. When I scratch something, it is indeed an expression instinctive to all of us cats. <laughs> Aye, she be expressing how much she don't like your furniture, lad. <laughs> I say, quite so. And uh, you could say she's also expressing how much she enjoys inflicting pain, what? <laughs> I do not enjoy inflicting pain. It's just that sometimes my petite, albeit uh, razor-sharp claws, can get away from me and... Like when you're chasing a ball of yarn? We, mm, oui. I admit, there are times when a ball of yarn can drive me crazy and I am no longer in control of my claws. Eh, right. Uh, it would seem at this point that we've indeed exhausted the whole scratching issue, what? Yes. Uh, thanks, Nigel. My whole point is to offer you, our loyal listener, the chance to partner with Playful World Ministries so we can keep on producing these epic podcasts week after week. Aye. T'would be a big help to announcer lad here. Exactly. Because let's face it, doggy food don't be getting any cheaper then, lad. Boy, that's for sure. And a few doggy biscuits once in a while would be a nice treat. Well, sure, but they've gone up in price, too. And maybe a T-bone steak now and then. Wi There's no steak, Max. Oh, contraire, monsieur. There is a lot at stake. <laughs> Indeed. You see, what announcer chap is implying is that he toils away at the podcast as a ministry to us all, but that also precludes him from using that time to generate income from other sources. Thus, your financial partnership in this epic podcast is rather vital. We oui. so if you and your children are blessed by listening to a podcast... And you would love to help pass on that blessing to future listeners... Then please consider becoming a sponsor of the Epic Order of the Seven podcast. Ah, thanks, guys. Really, a single gift would help defray the cost of producing and distributing our podcast, and regular weekly or monthly gifts will help ensure that we can keep on bringing the fun week after week. And through our parent ministry, ACT International, those gifts become tax-deductible contributions. And what is the easiest way to sponsor us, monsieur? Well, look in the show notes that come with each episode. I've included a link to our ministry through ACT called Giving Fuel. 
Then, after you've talked to the maker and he puts it in your heart to help us, simply click on that link and fill out a simple form with the amount and your contact info. I say, you make an excellent point, old chap. If God, uh, the maker, as we refer to him, is on board for you to become one of our sponsors, well then, uh, give as you feel he's leading you to give. Exactly, Nigel. And finally, thank you for allowing us a few moments to share our needs. I <laughs> like you gave him a choice, lad. <laughs> Indeed, old boy, you did rather abruptly spring this on everyone. Well, I suppose... Oui, Nigel, he sort of did it, uh, uh, from scratch, no? <laughs> <laughs> Aye, from scratch. Uh, so, lad, uh, tell us, your scratch, uh, did it start with a wee itch? Because when I scratch, it always starts with a wee itch. Then. All right, Max, that's enough. In fact, one time... Max! No, 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 this be a funny story. See, I was starting to itch real bad. Max! It was driving me crazy, and I couldn't make it go away. Monsieur, and can so you make I it go away? And me Turn off his mic. Flailing like ah, yeah, gladly. Control. I say, now stop the chapter, old boy. Yep, on it. Ahem, <laughs> uh, here we go. Oh, I got it all over. Chapter 45. If This Be Treason. A voice in the house makes seven words too short. Seven words, c'est ça! Liz exclaimed. Patrick's seven resolves must mean these seven words from the fiddle's riddle. But I do not understand the meaning of too short. Nigel and Liz were reading over the preamble and seven resolves Patrick had penned against the Stamp Act. After a lively discussion that went well into the night, Patrick, John, and George all agreed they would boldly present Patrick's resolves in the house the next day. John Fleming wrote out a copy of Patrick's resolves for them to keep when Patrick turned in his copy to the clerk to record following a vote. See here, Fleming's copy is spread across two pages with the first five resolves on page one and the last two resolves on page two, Nigel offered, pointing to the pages. The single candle flickered as Liz and Nigel read by the dim light in the tavern bedroom. The men snored loudly, exhausted after their draining day and night. These last two are the most radical, so I can see why they suggested Patrick hold back from reading them should the first five prove to be too much for the old god to handle. Liz furrowed her brow. Uh, perhaps, but the first four resolves do not contain anything truly different than the original resolves the house sent to England. Patrick deleted the polite, pompous words of lawyers and restated them in more assertive, straightforward terms even common people can understand. Mon Henry knows how to speak the language of the people for the people. Nigel tapped the fifth resolve. But the fifth has one word that will pose an issue for the pompous Burgesses. We, oui, it is the therefore the Burgesses will need to get past, agreed Liz, as there begins the language of forceful action. Even if they get past resolution number five, the shocking words in the sixth and seventh resolutions will launch a firestorm of debate like these Burgesses have never heard, Nigel posited. Suddenly his eyes widened. Fire! Great Britain has been stacking the dry logs of issues for quite some time against the colonies. And because these last two resolves could be the spark that ignites that fire, the old Burgesses will do everything in their power to dampen them. 
Liz answered somberly. Wednesday, May 29th, 1765. Patrick Henry, John Fleming, and George Johnston filed confidently into the assembly room just shy of the 10 a.m. bell that struck the hour and designated the official opening of the House of Burgesses. The friends each gave Patrick an affirming pat on the back as they took their seats. As the bell tolled ten times, Patrick removed his hat and tucked it under his seat. He smiled, thinking how Sally insisted that he purchase the hat for his birthday. He was 29 years old today. In a way, he felt so much older than the days when he was a struggling merchant and failed farmer. But as he looked around the room, he knew how young he really was compared with the old guard burgesses who had sat for decades in their well-established seats of this powerful chamber. Patrick slipped a finger around his collar to loosen his cravat as he gazed up at the life-sized portrait of King George III staring down at him. His heart raced because of what he was about to do. It was one thing to oppose the crown before a law was passed, but quite another to come against the King of England once his signature graced the parchment and he placed his signet ring into the glob of hot red wax to seal the law with royal finality. Patrick knew he was playing with treasonous fire. He closed his eyes as the words from Jeremiah once more filled his mind. You are to influence them not let them influence you. They will fight against you like a besieging army against a high city wall, but they will not conquer you, for I am with you to protect you and deliver you, says the Lord. Amen, Patrick prayed silently. Liz peeked out from a narrow slit in the green tablecloth under the clerk's table. Her heart raced as well. Joyeux anniversaire, mon Henry, she whispered how she wanted to run over and curl her tail around him affectionately to wish him happy birthday. It is you who shall give a gift today on your birthday. You shall give the gift of liberty, cher ami. Know that you are loved and you are able. Nigel smiled and softly put a paw on Liz's shoulder. He is ready, my dear, and the maker will make him able indeed. Never fear. Liz smiled. Merci, Nigel. Now we wait for the moment to come. Speaker Robinson opened up the session and proceeded to oversee the morning's business. First, the treasurer's report was passed, and then a few other minor matters were discussed. When Patrick couldn't take the waiting any longer, he nodded to George Johnston, who rose to his feet. Mr. Speaker, I propose that the House immediately meet in the Committee of the Whole to consider the steps necessary to take in response to the impending Stamp Act, announced Johnston. Second, Patrick Henry offered with an upraised hand. Speaker Robinson's face went flush. What he had tried to stall for weeks would wait no more. All in favor, say aye, Speaker Robinson announced looking around the chamber at the scant representatives numbering only 39 Burgesses. The motion is carried. He frowned, put his hands on his knees, and lifted himself up out of the speaker's chair. He slowly removed his wig and robe and took a seat on the bench as an ordinary Burgess. As was proper procedure, Attorney General Peyton Randolph took Robinson's place to preside over the meeting. Suddenly the clerk, John Randolph, 
lifted the green tablecloth to place the silver mace under the table. This was to signify the informality of the meeting. Liz took a quick breath and stepped back as the clerk nearly put the mace on her tail. She rested a paw over her racing heart and shared a knowing look with Nigel. That was close, she mouthed. Peyton Randolph lifted his hand. The committee of the whole is now in session. You may proceed, Mr. Johnston. I defer to my colleague, the gentleman from Louisa County, Mr. Patrick Henry, stated Johnston with an outstretched hand. The Burgesses looked at one another in concern. They were expecting Johnston, not Henry, to address the committee. Thank you, Mr. Johnston, Patrick Henry began as he rose to his feet. He reached into his pocket and unfolded the paper of his resolves. He glanced around the room and bowed respectfully to Speaker Robinson and the Burgesses, who sat up with heightened curiosity as to what he was going to do. With your permission, I would like to read this document pertaining to the impending Stamp Act, Patrick said, clearing his throat and taking a deep breath. <clears throat> Given that the law will go into effect this November, I have prepared a statement and resolves in response. The old guard Burgesses looked at one another and murmured in alarm. They immediately fixed their icy gaze on Patrick. We do not need such further statements before we have received England's response to our petitions, Richard Bland insisted. Proceed, Mr. Henry, Peyton Randolph said reluctantly, knowing that Henry must now be heard in the committee. Patrick held up the paper and gave one last look at Fleming and Johnston before he began. Whereas the Honorable House of Commons in England have of late drawn into question how far the General Assembly of this colony hath the power to enact laws for laying of taxes and imposing duties payable by the people of this His Majesty's most ancient colony, for settling and ascertaining the same to all future times, the House of Burgesses of this present General Assembly have come to the following resolves. How dare he assume to speak for us? Robert Carter Nicholas muttered under his breath. Resolved that the first adventurers and settlers of His Majesty's colony and dominion of Virginia brought with them and transmitted to their posterity and all other His Majesty's subjects since inhabiting in this His Majesty's said colony all the liberties, privileges, franchises, and immunities that have at any time been held, enjoyed, and possessed by the people of Great Britain, read Patrick, looking up briefly as he went on to read the second resolve. Resolved that by two royal charters granted by King James I, the colonists aforesaid are declared entitled to all liberties, privileges, and immunities of denizens and natural subjects, to all intents and purposes, as if they had been abiding and born within the realm of England. Nigel peeped out from under the green tablecloth to gauge the response from the Burgesses. So far so good for these first two resolves, he whispered. The Burgesses cannot dispute that when the explorers and colonists arrived in America, they brought with them all their rights as English citizens, and that Virginia's two royal charters also promised these same rights to the colonists. Patrick continued reading, 
now the third and fourth resolves. Resolved, that the taxation of the people by themselves, or by persons chosen by themselves to represent them, who can only know what taxes the people are able to bear, or the easiest method of raising them, and must themselves be affected by every tax laid on the people, is the only security against a burdensome taxation, and the distinguishing characteristic of British freedom, without which the ancient constitution cannot exist. Resolved that His Majesty's liege people of this his most ancient and loyal colony have without interruption enjoyed the inestimable right of being governed by such laws, respecting their internal policy and taxation, as are derived from their own consent, with the approbation of their sovereign or his substitute, and that the same has never been forfeited or yielded up, but has been constantly recognized by the kings and people of Great Britain. Liz had to see for herself and peeked out from under the table to look into the faces of the Burgesses. They also must agree that taxation by the people or their chosen representatives is the true mark of British freedom, and that the people have only ever paid taxes voted on by Virginians alone, she echoed. People had begun crowding around the open doorway as word quickly spread about what Patrick was doing. This is acceptable so far, but here comes the therefore. Patrick glanced over at John Fleming and George Johnston, who gave him firm nods of support. He then saw the crowd gathering at the doorway and spied young Thomas Jefferson. He then glanced over the old guard, who scowled and seemed to dare him to take things one step further, leaning in expectantly and clenching their fists. Patrick lifted his chin high and read the fifth resolve. Resolved, therefore, that the General Assembly of this colony have the only and exclusive right and power to lay taxes and impositions upon the inhabitants of this colony, and that every attempt to vest such power in any person or persons whatsoever other than the General Assembly aforesaid has a manifest tendency to destroy British as well as American freedom. The Burgesses immediately began to squirm, and the room buzzed with talk over such a brash statement. But Patrick Henry wasn't finished. He isn't stopping at number five, Nigel whispered hoarsely, gripping Liz's arm. Here come the two sparks for the colonial fire. Resolved that His Majesty's liege people, the inhabitants of this colony, are not bound to yield obedience to any law or ordinance whatever designed to impose any taxation whatsoever upon them, other than the laws or ordinances of the General Assembly aforesaid. Richard Bland, Robert Carter Nicholas, George Wythe, and the old guard Burgesses were on their feet shouting, how dare you suggest that Virginians do not have to obey any law not passed by this assembly? You are defying the crown with such slander. Patrick ignored them and locked eyes with the painting of King George III. His anger rose, and his voice boomed out the seventh and final resolve. Resolved that any person who shall, by speaking or writing, assert or maintain that any person or persons 
other than the General Assembly of this colony, have any right or power to impose or lay any taxation on the people here, shall be deemed an enemy to His Majesty's colony. Immediately the chamber erupted into a violent debate as one member after another jumped to their feet, shouting their opposition. Fleming, Johnston, and other Henry supporters, such as Colonel Robert Munford and Paul Carrington, countered with shouts of solid arguments, while the onlookers packed in the doorway stood there in awe of what was happening. "'I have never heard anything like this,' observed Thomas Jefferson, his jaw hanging open at hearing the words coming out of Patrick's mouth. "'Henry speaks as Homer wrote.' It was as if a verbal bloodbath were unleashed in the House of Burgesses as the representatives fought over the audacity of Patrick Henry. Not only were Patrick's resolves viciously attacked, but the opposition sought to destroy Patrick's personal character and reputation. The unmitigated goal, Nigel screamed in response to the personal attacks against Patrick Henry. But Liz sat there calmly and smiled. She knew that her Henry would have the final overpowering word that would cut like a knife through the shouts of the pompous elitist Burgesses who sought his political demise. She knew he would carry the day with the same supernatural zeal and power in his voice that he had used in the Parsons' cause. Wait for it, mon ami. Patrick Henry held up his hand and a hush fell over the house as members slowly turned one by one to see what he had to say. He allowed an excruciating pause to continue until each and every Burgess was under his control and gave him their full attention. He slowly pushed his spectacles atop his head. Caesar had his Brutus, Patrick finally said in a firm, resolute voice looking around the room. These men well knew their Roman history of the assassination of the tyrant Julius Caesar. Charles I, his Cromwell. He roared in a louder voice, pausing again to allow the image of Oliver Cromwell toppling the King of England to fill their minds. And George III, he thundered with fiery eyes as he pointed to the portrait of King George III. Treason! The man has spoken treason! Speaker Robinson bellowed, pointing a pudgy finger at Patrick. Treason! the other conservative burgesses shouted in agreement. May profit by their example, Patrick finished with a bone-chilling, eerie calm in his voice that brought a hush over the room. He slowly lowered his accusing finger and looked piercingly at each and every man in the chamber. If this be treason, make the most of it. Stunned silence. Patrick slowly walked back to his seat and sat down, crossing his legs, resting his hands on his knees, and nodding with a grin to Fleming and Johnston. Thursday, May 30th, 1765 By God, I would have given one hundred guineas for a single vote! Peyton Randolph exclaimed as he stormed out of the hall of the House of Burgesses, blazing past Thomas Jefferson, who had returned to hear the vote on Patrick Henry's resolves. Randolph hurried down the Duke of Gloucester Street together with a group of old guard Burgesses. Liz and Nigel cheered and hugged one another outside where Ms. P stood. 
In addition to the first four resolutions, the fifth one passed. Liz exclaimed, Oh, it passed! Just barely, my dear, by a vote of twenty to nineteen, Nigel replied, wiping his brow. If there had been a tie on the vote for the fifth resolution, Speaker Robinson would have cast the deciding vote to defeat it in favor of the Crown. Why was Patrick's fifth resolution so controversial to everyone? Miss P wanted to know. Because it was the very first time a colony declared independence from taxation by Parliament, Nigel explained. Well, it sounds like those old field nags got their noses smacked by Patrick and his high-blooded colts, Miss P opined proudly. It's always the young ones who buck the system and start new movements while the old ones try to hold hands to stop them. Liz giggled. <laughs> I could not have given Mon Henry a better birthday gift if I tried. Now he can celebrate with his friends tonight. Patrick has different plans, Liz, Miss P replied. He told Fleming and Johnston he was heading home this afternoon after the vote as he figured the governor will dissolve the house once he hears about what happened today. We'll be getting on the road soon. Liz and Nigel looked at one another in surprise. Maybe he's concerned that Governor Farquhar will come after him for his treasonous speech, so feels like he should depart, conjectured Liz. I'm not sure what Patrick is thinking, but I can imagine what those gentlemen are thinking, guessed Nigel pointing to Peyton Randolph, George Wythe, and Speaker Robinson. They were hurriedly walking up the palace green to the governor's palace. What do you suppose they are up to? Liz's mind raced. Do they know that Patrick is leaving Williamsburg? I suppose so, Miss P answered, watching Patrick walking toward them, now dressed in rustic leather breeches and with saddlebags draped over his arm. Here he comes now, chatting with that young Paul Carrington, one of his greatest admirers. Yes, that young man was quite mesmerized with Patrick's fiery voice during the debates, Nigel agreed. I've never seen such a visible display of enthusiasm from a Burgess. Like Patrick, young Carrington was also elected late to the House and arrived after this session had already begun. Nigel, Hurry and get to the palace and see if those men meet with the governor about what happened today. Liz instructed the mouse as she hid behind a tree. Something tells me that as soon as Mon Henry rides out of town on Miss P, those men are going to try to undo everything he just did in the house. Friday, May 31st, 1765 Why, those arrogant old Field nags, Nigel ranted, borrowing Miss P's expression for the old guard Burgesses. He paced back and forth across the green tablecloth on the clerk's table, raising his fists angrily. They actually went through with it. They convinced Governor Farquhar to postpone dissolving the House tomorrow until they have reversed the vote on Patrick's fifth resolution today. This is preposterous. Steady, Mousie. Liz told the outraged mouse as she looked through the journal of the House of Burgesses. The assemblyman had left the capital for the day, and Liz and Nigel stayed behind under the table to wait and see exactly what had been recorded in the official record of the House of Burgesses. We will figure out a way to make this right, 
the truth must always find a way to come out, no? After Patrick Henry left town, Peyton Randolph, Speaker Robinson, and the others met with the governor and told him of what had happened with the Stamp Act resolves. They all agreed that it was in their best interest in the eyes of Parliament to have the Fifth Resolve reversed, so looked for a way to erase the vote. Thomas Jefferson had arrived early that morning at the House of Burgesses and spotted his cousin Peter Randolph hurriedly searching through the Parliament books before the Burgesses arrived. Peter was a member of the Governor's Council and was sent to find a precedent that would allow them to reverse the vote or expunge, remove, the vote entirely from the record. When the rest of the Burgesses arrived and the Assembly was called into session, Speaker Robinson and the Old Guard members moved to strike all five of Patrick's resolves. When that failed, they concentrated on striking down the fifth resolution alone, since it had only passed by one vote the day before. They succeeded in voting again to accept or reject the fifth resolution. Now that Patrick Henry was gone, the vote was finally a tie, and Speaker Robinson cast the deciding vote. The fifth resolution was promptly struck from the journal, leaving only four resolves approved by the House. Look here, Nigel, Liz said, pointing to that day's official journal page of the Virginia House of Burgesses. Not only did Speaker Robinson cast the deciding vote to erase Patrick's fifth resolution, it appears that he even had the erasure itself erased. The original page showing the motion to expunge the fifth resolution has been torn out and rewritten. Nigel looked at the freshly inked journal entry in the place of the removed page. It showed that only four resolutions had ever been passed. There was no mention of what had transpired that day. Why, those sneaky, stuffy Burgesses, they have tampered with the truth. Blast it all, there weren't four but five resolutions that first passed this house, and there were seven resolutions presented, if you count the two that were rejected as out-and-out -out treasonous. Chills suddenly made Liz's fur stand on end as she remembered the fiddle's riddle. A voice in the house makes five words too short. Five words plus two words, seven words in all were proposed, but now only four are officially in the record. Indeed, Nigel replied with a scowl. He suddenly remembered something. My dear, Clarice said you and I would need to act quickly after we figured out the rest of the riddle. What do you suppose we are meant to do? Well, Patrick's resolutions were powerful, but they did not lay out a course of action, Liz replied, her mind quickly formulating a plan. They only denied the right of the king to tax the colonies. What good are words if they are not followed by actions? She then smiled and looked at her mouse friend. Nigel, since the sneaky Burgesses want to silence Patrick's voice in their journal for Parliament to read, then we need to make sure his resolutions are printed in the newspapers for all America to read. By Jove, you're right, Nigel cheered, but then his face fell. But the Virginia Gazette simply will not publish Patrick's resolves. That cheeky Robinson not only controls the House of Burgesses, but he also controls what that loyalist printer Joseph Royal puts in the paper. 
even if the Virginia Gazette did print the resolves, they would only print the four that were officially passed. If the Virginia Gazette will not print Mon Henry's resolutions, then we will make sure that the other colonial papers do, proposed Liz, twitching her tail defiantly. We shall make copies of his resolutions that you and Cato can then deliver to the northern papers. I am certain the other gazettes will print them, but we must do this quickly and strike where the iron is hot. Brilliant! We shall burn the midnight oil and make copies of the resolutions so Cato and I can take flight in the morning, Nigel agreed, taking a blank sheet of paper from the clerk's desk. He dipped the quill in the ink and hesitated. But should we copy the five resolutions that were originally passed or the four that were officially passed? Neither, Liz answered with a gleam in her eye, picking up Patrick's handwritten resolves. Before they destroy this piece of evidence, we shall send copies of all seven of Patrick's resolutions, plus the preamble. Since those pompous burgesses have seen fit to silence Mon Henry's treasonous voice so the people will not hear, then we shall not hold back a single word he spoke. We are the order of the seven, no? Nigel's eyes widened behind his spectacles, and he put a paw over his mouth to stifle his shock. My dear, this is quite the scandalous move. I suppose if we simply send the original seven resolves as they were proposed to the House of Burgesses, then the papers will indeed still be printing the truth. We, of course we must print what is true, but we will do exactly as Mon Henry instructed. Liz asserted with a determined face and a sly grin. If this be treason, make the most of it. Hi, well done, Liz and Mousy. Uh, you helped print only what were proposed then. We, oui, uh, we did not present them as past, but simply proposed. And that's absolutely true. And it brings up a really great point that we must all be very careful about what we state publicly, like in social media and stuff. And just as importantly, how we say it. For indeed, if something is merely proposed, well, then we shouldn't present it as if it's already passed. That's stretching the truth. That would be dishonest, and it wouldn't honor the maker. Hey, if you do have all the facts, then you shouldn't go flapping your gums about it. Exactly. So now, in a related story... We'll take you to the newsroom for another edition of Nudge's News Nuggets. Greetings, Nigel P. Monaco here with a behind-the-scenes look at the thought process that went into Liz's and my decision to circumvent that local Virginia Gazette to other news sources. Uh, Nigel, I thought you and I agreed not to disclose some of our uh, preliminary ideas. <laughs> well, indeed, but looking back, I find them rather amusing, don't you? Uh, I would find them rather foolish and embarrassing, mon ami. <laughs> now, now, my pet, it is often best to find humor in our past faux pas and... And jeopardize our reputations as intelligent and... Oh, just spit out then! You got us all wondering what you were thinking. <sighs> Fine. I'll just be over here in the corner with my pointed little ears turning red. Ah, uh, not to worry, lass. With all that black fur, it'll be hard to tell. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, moving along, our first consideration back then was to hire the services of a flock of uh, magpies. Ah, 
Them loud, obnoxious birds that can't keep their beaks shut? Indeed. <laughs> yes, they are messengers indeed, but alas, uh, it's true, they never uh, keep their beaks shut. We, it became obvious rather quickly that they would uh, irritate people before the real message was even received. <laughs> Indeed. So then, uh, considering the telltale rumor-like nature of these resolves, we considered the old uh, fly-on-the-wall method, so we enlisted thousands of flies to land on walls, uh, trying to create a buzz, as it were. <laughs> uh, but most of the humans were quick to bring in a SWAT team, as it were. Yes, and rather squash the effort. Uh, quite literally. So then, we considered the need to distribute the resolves far and wide, and so we folded them into paper airplanes. Oh. And they flew, neither far nor wide. Uh, true. On the upside, though, it is believed that they were the first pamphlets ever to be referred to as flyers. <laughs> And probably the first airplanes to be charged with littering. <laughs> yes, uh, jolly good. Uh, so, finally, we visited some local fast food taverns uh, to have them add little messages to their chicken bites, uh, similar to a Chinese fortune cookie. I am so embarrassed. Uh, sadly, it was found that little slips of paper become rather difficult to read when drenched in barbecue sauce. Or even honey mustard. <laughs> uh, uh, right. Uh, so at long last, we realized twould be best to put the proposals out in print. Hi, Mosey, because your printing be way easier to read than your handwriting. That is because he does not have hands, Max. He has tiny little paws. Well, they kind of look like tiny little hands. But they are not. <clears throat> so then, when uh, Liz uh, brilliantly enlisted the long-distance transport services of Cato Airlines, <laughs> uh, why, uh, problem solved. And thus, in the poetic words of Alexander Pope, to air is human, uh, but to airlift takes a eagle. <laughs> <laughs> Touché, Max. Now that was funny, Nigel, no? <laughs> Yeah, it's jolly good. Uh, for Nigel's News Nuggets, along with a whole consortium of comic geniuses, I'm Nigel P. Monaco in the newsroom. Well, thank you, Nigel. And with that, it's time for us all to take off on Eagle's Wings, so to speak, and bring today's podcast to a close. And we want to invite you to join us next time for a very special episode of the Epic Order of the Seven. Huh, what's so special about it? You'll see. Oh, well, thanks, Anosir lad. That clears it up. It's going to be a surprise. Oh, so you do not know either, do you, monsieur? No, I mean, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> I say, uh, do you? <sighs>Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderoftheseven.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.